Hello, welcome to Conversations with Myself. Change up a format, haven't been here this way for a while. This is Seneca. Chats between a father and son, or alternatively, possibly, two twins mysteriously born 22 years apart. Who can say? Taking a break from the audiobook this week to pop into a little talk we had about travels and time spent together long ago. Hope you enjoy. Quick side note that when we recorded this conversation, I was on the third day of a fast and my brain and therefore audio engineering skills were not exactly on point. Also, as usual, Rusty and I curse habitually. So if you're in sensitive company, put on those headphones. I think it all started uh, because I wanted to take a trip after college. I had finished, I had to do, I think if I remember right, I had to do like one summer school class to finish my degree, to get enough, to finish my philosophy credits. And so yep. I, I did that. It was a bioethics class, if I remember correctly, which I'm pretty sure I do. And then I had suggested that I really wanted to go to Brazil because uh, I had been fascinated by Brazil and studied Portuguese for a lot of weird reasons. I just thought it was interesting. So I thought, let's go to Brazil. And then I think... Was it you who suggested that we do more than one thing when we first go to Peru? Because you were, I think that was your it, idea. It was because that. I had discovered a book. I was busy while you were doing that and sorting that, you know, what's my opera school life going to be? I was trying to figure out what my opera bond life was going to be because I had told those guys to go fuck themselves. And right. rather than pay me $2 million, they gave me some other money and I walked away without suing them. So... Um, I was married to Karen and uh, I loved textiles and I thought in, in a way that I now look back and think, my, what would have been like if I'd actually done that? I thought, hmm, people are always talking about following their passions, you know, and I had visions of the old man on television talking about following your bliss. And so I thought, I love textiles. That's a genuine affection I have. And so, hmm, Karen is a Stanford grad, so I have access to the Green Library back when libraries were like they were. Um, so I trotted myself down and got a 10-day pass to the Green Library at Stanford and began to look through the textile catalogs, hundreds of textiles. I mean, I was, it was a job. I was there eight hours a day, a total manimal on the job. And I was looking at every possible type of human involvement with textiles. And I looked through Middle Eastern and, and Japanese and Chinese and ancient Chinese, which it turned out was really equivocal because later much more was discovered but you know turkmonic um, south american indigenous uh, you know materials native structures and and i was really not finding anything that got me stoked it was all very rigid and i didn't that wasn't really my background because the palette and utility form of the guatemalan textiles which were sort of a living culture textiles were really mm -hmm. what got me interested in textiles as you remember, you were there with me. I dragged you around to many late night oh, bazaars, yeah. forcing, forcing you to, <laughs> forcing you to remember that, that I told you if you had a choice between food or art, beg for food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you also, you also made me buy a lot of things I didn't want to buy just, in, oh, for, just yeah. as practice to learn how to haggle and buy things, which was yeah. Was you hated miserable. haggling. Yes. You despised, you despised haggling. I, it wasn't I, native to you, and I'd never haggled before. I didn't think until I looked back and realized that as a pot grower, I haggled endlessly. Um, but um, then I called you one day because I had made a miraculous discovery. I was going to take, uh, I was going to the bathroom to relieve myself, Swan says, and I was down away from the part of the library dedicated to textiles. And I don't know why I was glanced down and I saw the spine of a book. It was very colorful. And for some reason I just grabbed it. And it said, the title was um, Paracas, Ritual burial attire in the Paracas Peninsula. That was the actual title of it. And it was, I opened it up on the cover in fabulous color was this flying cat zombie creature and had a tail and the stuff coming out of its mouth. It looked like it was hallucinating things, which I was familiar with. And I opened the book and what? There was these illustrations of this unbelievable textile culture that was associated with 2000 year old uh, Atacama desert, Peruvian desert culture called the Paracas people. And I was so excited, I went downstairs and I called you from the payphone when there were such things. And I said, hey, um, wanna go to Peru? And you said, hey, I, I really wanna go to Brazil. And I said, okay, um, I will take you to Brazil if you come with me to Peru. 
And you said, what are we going to do there? And I said, I'm going to get some of these ancient textiles. And I think I'm quoting you verbatim saying, isn't that illegal? And I said, I think it probably is. And you said, okay, when are we leaving? That's pretty much more, more, more or less it. <laughs> the high, high exposure to my previous life, you, you thought of crime as sort of, in, you were indifferent to that as part of the program. Yeah. Um, and you, we had a, a, I think you, you were particularly talented and maybe I as like an echo of that got a, a, had a special skill in finding places in weird states of distress to visit. So like, oh, yeah. We, and I don't think I knew much about Peru at all at that point, except for as soon as we got there, I realized that sure enough, we'd found another one because this in 1991, Peru was, for those who don't know, like in the depths of an insane civil war that was fueled by this truly crazy group called Sendero Luminoso, which were nominally like leftists, but really they were this true really trippy cult of personality type of organization that was focused around this guy named guzman who was a lunatic like they were they were sort of like maoist communists in theory but really what they did was just like almost like a violent crime family that had taken over huge parts of the country and was just creating mass chaos so there was that part of it which was really trippy and then also this is like heavy drug war period and Peru still to this day, as far as I know, is the biggest supplier of raw coca in the whole world yeah, from the Wayaga. So they don't process much on the Peruvian side, but all that cocaine that gets processed in Colombia, like most of the coca actually was coming and probably yeah. still comes from Peru. And so there was like this insane uh, civil war bombings all over the country and in the capital. And then at the same time, there was this crazy economic situation where there were so many dollars in Peru that basically the local currency had been devalued to nothing. And right as we got there, or like the week before we got there, the central government had put in a new currency called the Nuevo right. Sol. And, but, but you almost couldn't get it because they had just started printing it. And well, it was the banks like, wouldn't let you. the banks wouldn't let you get it. And also it was worth more than a dollar because of this bizarre, bizarre the dollars world. Worth, the dollars were 78 cents. Right. So you, so we arrived in this weird, bizarro world where like all this weird shit was happening. And so, so we, so what I remember is we showed up there, we got there late at night and I just remember taking a cab to like this hotel that I don't even remember how we had identified the hotel. The the hotel was near the, it was right near the beach. It was a very nice hotel. It was in Miraflores. No, it was the Papillon. It was in Miraflores. The hotel right. was called the Papillon, the butterfly. The neighborhood and, was Miraflores, yeah. And it was the neighborhood was in Miraflores, but yeah. it was down toward, down toward the, the coast, right? Just two blocks from the cliffs, Yeah. Um, which we didn't know at that time. It was very, very breezy and chilly. You know, you get there at one o'clock in the morning or whenever the fuck it was. It was, it was I just remember on the way there being impressed by driving down this one big boulevard full of prostitutes and having the, the driver tell us because you spoke spanish fluently i i could understand a lot but i wasn't speaking until 1995 um or no 94 i guess well um, i mean you 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 could make yourself understood but, oh yes but but, yeah you weren't you didn't have a like really clear facility with it that no yeah. i had a terrible facility with language i was basically just a cripple with excellent miming skills but um i had what one would call zen spanish you know just the present tense nothing else um and and so i remember that i remember the, the driver telling us that they were transvestites right. which i think in the current day it would not mean what it meant then these were men who dressed as women many tall dark-skinned men uh who, who dressed as as women and they were stunning and i just remember driving through this and going holy shit this is like macarthur boulevard in in piedmont or oakland you know, it was mind blowing. And then suddenly, poof, there we are at this nice hotel. Well, it didn't happen that suddenly. I, I remember I remember because <laughs> the airport in Lima is out in this area that's basically near called El Callao. It's near the port. And it, it used to be a yeah. whole di- a whole different town. So it's it's actually kind of a long drive from the airport into it's like an, hour. an area called like Miraflores or or yeah. any of those neighborhoods that are like in the city center. Nice neighborhoods in the city center. And El Callao mm-hmm. is a rough place. So when you get out of the airport in Lima, especially in the early 90s, like 
it was intense. And I hadn't been anywhere like that for a long time. Like maybe not since I was a kid and we were going to Central America had I been in that kind of in, in like immersion in like poor Latin America. <laughs> yeah, where bodies wrapped in sheets on the roadside, that thing. Yeah. And so I was kind of like, whoa, what, what, you know, where have we landed? And and then I remember just driving around through all these areas to get into Miraflores and finally. And so, yeah, so it was kind of an, an intense uh, jump into Peru. And, the, and such oh, a ruin. And I should also mention the third thing. So there was civil war. There was like weird economic situation. Also, there was cholera, a cholera outbreak that oh, was really right, severe. Cholera outbreak. <laughs> that was the other thing. So that people had told us, and then we were reading up on like all the things, all the sadly classically Peruvian things, the, the <laughs> best things like that they make in a way, like ceviche, that ceviche. you just weren't you were supposed to stay the fuck away from entirely. Like, don't even go to a ceviche. Oh, yet. so that so that brings us that brings us to okay. Hold on, know. but let's let's not okay. jump ahead. Let's stick with the hotel because <laughs> the first few steps in our immersion into Peru were hilarious and kind of a classic adventure of ours. In oh a yeah. Sense. So they okay, we got to the hotel. It was indeed like pretty nice. Oh, and the other thing people had told us like was be really careful with the water. Not just like normal Latin America careful, but like super <laughs> careful. Like don't you know. Um, which is well, it goes along with cholera, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So they're like, yeah, and, and like, as in, like the don't wet your toothbrush level of carefulness, which I'm not, I can't, can't even do. But um, people were really intense about it, so I was kind of like, wow, this sounds serious. Like, anyway, so we land at this hotel, and then was it the very first night that we realized it had bed bugs? No, that wasn't the. That was the good hotel. That was the hotel we stayed the first night. We stayed oh, in a really? really nice hotel the first night, and then we went across town. Out down to the end of because uh, it was uh, that place was too pricey. Why did we change? Yes, it was too pricey. It was, okay. it, I don't know, it was something on the order of seventy eight dollars a night or something. Outrageous! I was outrageous. That's insane. I was always uh, my metric was always uh, the cheapest hotel in the universe in Guat City, where it was two dollars for four people with two meals for yes. each of us. That, to my mind, is the ultimate traveler's metric. <laughs> oh, well you i did yeah you weren't a luxe hotel stayer that's for sure even though we had even though we weren't poor at this point in time like you had plenty of money we could have spent 78 dollars a night i, I could spend 150 200 it wouldn't wouldn't have mattered right. fuck all to me i was used to staying in the omni in new york for 700 dollars a night but that was on them you know yeah. this was so, the principle yeah. of the thing we're in latin america <laughs> exactly i'm not gonna ask this you to spend wrong. 78 dollars there's a war there is an economic chaos. There's yeah. disease. There's. I think at that year there were maybe 2,500 American tourists, 2,500 in the whole country during yeah. a year, and we were some of them. And I was outraged. I was like, "Come on!" Yeah. <laughs> side effect. Side effect. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but I just want to get this out of the way because there's no reason to get to it later. We did go to Machu Picchu on this trip, and I guarantee <laughs> neither one of us will ever see it like that again. Because no one will ever see it like that again right. unless there's a plague. Yeah. Well, maybe right now it's the same. I don't know. For all I know. No. But uh, anyway, no. I remember we stayed. I don't remember the name of that place, but there's a there is that hotel that is at it's all at the city, right? And so um, because you're right there, at, literally at the entrance to the park, you can leave the hotel and go into the park before the trains arrive with the, tur- the tourist trains and the day trippers come. So you get like a good two hours before anyone arrives at all. Which was so already seven German tourists. The only people right. there were the seven German tourists. Yeah, it was just us out. and those Germans. And so for like two full hours that morning that we were there, it, we were literally like walking around the city of Machu Picchu by ourselves. And we had like, yeah, yeah we got one, photos of that. So anyway, I just wanted to throw. And wait there. a second, but let's keep on to that because when it was fully maxed out in the late day of a, of the That's weekend true. in the middle of summer, there were maybe twelve people. Yeah, no, it was never. It never did get busy, <laughs> but it was kind of an you know. And the other weird thing is that the president's wife uh, landed in a helicopter that afternoon in an in a PR attempt to show that it was safe to visit Peru. <laughs> she, and she, and she loved you. She thought you were terrific because yeah. you spoke Spanish. Yeah, I was like so, a meat man. Yeah, Madame Fujimori showed up and like shook hands with the with the meager amount of tourists that were there <laughs> on camera as this weird <laughs> weird gesture to the international community that like yeah please visit our famous UNESCO heritage sites Which they're I, super and safe and I, I, i've just flown in here with a 100 yeah. heavily armed men <laughs> and to tell you how safe it is thanks I, for coming i presume yeah and then helicoptered the hell out cuz i'm certainly not going to drive up <laughs> here or take a fucking train that would be suicidal <laughs> 
anyway, oh, so there were there were weird uh, there as always there were weird benefits to visiting these stressed out places at an awkward time. Oh, there were countless benefits. I mean, the, the, of course, always these circumstances only really benefit people who can leave at any time. And yeah, the, exactly. We would show up in an extreme uh, position of privilege. And yeah, yeah, you you do get these odd or, moments. Or but. The rich who are there who can leave at any time just because they're rich. The Swiss Peruvians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Percy. Um, yeah. yeah, although that's a whole other thing. So yeah. okay, so we okay. leave. We leave. We're outraged by the high prices of yep. the mariposa, and we leave to go find a cheaper place, which we found. And the cab driver, and he says, oh, okay. I have just the place for you. I don't remember this part. <laughs> and he takes Always a good recommendation. <laughs> yeah, that's like, well, we weren't asking him about prostitutes because that's not our thing. So, so we go down. We are yet again near the ocean down uh, by Malicón Cisneros, which comes into the story later, um, right at the rondel there. Uh, and I think the street is uh, Admiral Belgrado is that particular street. Um, yeah, it's Admiral Belgrado. And anyway, so it's off to the left on Elmer Belgrado. It's a really sweet-looking little place. Like, it's something from Cuba in 1950. Um, you know, you walk in. The night attendant is very, you know, happy, thrilled, uh, beside himself to see you. Um, you go in. The, the room is, you know, pleasant. Its beds are, you know, not great. But then... <laughs> the bed bugs. <laughs> the bed bugs. <laughs> yeah, so I think we spent... I, I think we spent one night there and I woke up the next morning and just like rashed on one side that I'd slept on with bites. And and, said, What's that? It's like, uh oh. Yeah. That, I've never seen bed bugs, but that must be bed bugs. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's ironic that in all our time traveling these kinds of places, that's the first time we were either one of us ever got bed bugs. And it's the only time. I don't have you ever had anything? No, no neither I have I. Yeah. In all those years. Okay, so and, we bailed. How did we find that dude? Who ended up okay, taking us to the next place? Left our shit there. We left our shit there, and we started on the hunt for illicit goods. I mean, I immediately okay. was on the ground. It was just like any other thing, like in Guatemala when you're looking for the rare cloth, or it was nothing different except for this time it was illegal. And so I decided, okay, the people who need the most and have the least are going to be yeah. in the streets. So we just started going to every little. Well, uh, antique, the antiquarios. We but what's the weird is the antiquarios do show these things. It wasn't illegal to buy them. It was illegal to take them out of Peru. So the yeah. weird, the weird thing is like these, those shops had things on display. I remember, remember that guy's shop had a mummy in the window, like a full on burial mummy all wrapped up yeah. still. And that was for sale. But like, <laughs> what are you supposed <laughs> to do with right. it? Like, sure, I'll buy the mummy. And then what? Then, yeah. You know, so it's like nobody asked the question of the next thing that was going to happen. You know, like, okay, you, I'll sell this to you. <laughs> and and I can't do anything with it. Yeah, uh, yeah that so, was yeah. that was that so was and that was the same time they were starting to make Peruvians declare their uh, their ancient holdings, and they were asking people to voluntarily submit lists of what they had right. to the government, which everybody was super happy to do, um, <laughs> as one might imagine. <laughs> yeah. so, so this that, is a country. The first thing we discovered right away, observably, was. This is a country with enormous amounts of old wealth that had gone to ground, or it was so old that even the people who were living in the ancient mansions that had at one time had the wealth yeah. were just living in the crypt of their former status. Yeah, it was they were just they were shells. Yeah, shells yeah. of mansions. It was very weird. Yeah, it was a shattered economy, like super shattered economy. And so we were wandering around. And we can't. We and we already we met. Um, we met the guy with the with like one bad arm right away. I think his name is Alfredo. I was remembering. It's like right. we met him right away as we were wandering up by the American Hotel, the Richie American Hotel up there. What was it called? The El Dorado, um, and um, where we would later meet meet the uh, young woman uh, that was Portuguese. Oh yeah, Maria uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and. Um, Anyway, so we were there, and there were a number of these crappy little, you know, tourist things. Of course, they were all abandoned. Some, most of them shuttered. And these guys were just looking for something, trying to steal something, trying to take advantage. That was everybody's game, you know. And they spotted us. We were just, you know, sore thumbs, wandering around, yokels, mm -hmm. and asking the right questions. 
And then they, uh, that guy, Alfredo, took us, because uh, uh, Tito's shop is, so he took us away from that district down in, by Parque Kennedy, uh, one of the side streets there where Tito's shop was, um, closer to the right. park. And he introduced us to Tito. And that's how we, that's how we came to move, the, like the second or third day, that's how we went from that hotel to living in a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we found out what was really going on in all those mansions. So Tito was like, so we, I think we eventually got around to talk, talking a story with him and we eventually told him about the bed bug situation and we weren't comfortable with the hotel. And he was like, oh, I, I've got a perfect situation. And he spoke uh, English. Yeah, let me let me introduce you to my friend. And so we were just like, oh, okay, let's you know. <laughs> so he takes us over. I don't think we went and got our stuff first. He went and showed us. Yeah, uh, he went and showed us first. And I don't remember that guy's name at all. I don't either. But he was a little a little skeevy. It was it was an odds. It it wasn't actually. An, he was always wearing the same shirt, man. Yeah, he didn't seem to have much of a wardrobe. He seemed a little unkempt, but he was living in this enormous house in Miraflores that was like you know overlooking the cliff. Yeah, right by the ocean. Um, yeah. And so then we went into this place, and sure enough, it's like this expansive, huge house, it, which is just abandoned and all fucked up on the inside, but still was like yeah. functional. Like the water still ran and. Like yeah. it, it worked. So we ended up renting a room with him, but I don't yeah. remember having many in, or any interactions with him really substantially. Very at all. few interactions. He was, he was like a ghost. And, yeah. and I remember the house, the house was, ha, had very few pieces of furniture left in it. Right. He had it was sold mostly everything. empty. Yeah, it was mostly empty. And the kitchen had a black and white tile setup, a huge like sideboard by the sink. Um, it had one time clearly been, you know, a house a lot of people or prepared large meals there the kitchen was really vast as was the bathroom i remember the big you know the steel the you know the iron legged tub and all that it was yep. quite it was a cool place to be and the hot water situation was weird because oh yeah because uh, they only turned the uh, the electricity was only on part of the day it was like being in Copan in 1978 or some shit the whole city was like power cuts except for like two hours or something there was there was like some very limited number of amount of power hours and you yeah. try and do all your stuff then the one good thing about that place other than it didn't have bed bugs was that it was right near that food cart where they made the turkey sandwiches <laughs> which sounds like the most it sounds like in, the most innocuous thing for me to say in the world that like we went to lima peru and found a place that served turkey sandwiches but i don't know how to properly convey what an amazing sandwich that food Best made. ever, I believe, would be the two words to use. Best ever. I I can't even begin to say that that they had this like ahi mayo, which is like a, a you know whole food group for Peruvians, the chili, different chilies, and like there's you know several different things called ahi, and they're all different and amazing. Chilies and potatoes in Peru. Yeah, if, for people who don't know Peruvian cuisine, are just insane. Papas Anyway, so this this food cart was like right near that house, and it it we went, I mean we must have gone there like five different times at least to get the same no, sandwich. No, we went there. We went there every fucking day when we could, and it was always at midnight or something. Yeah, it we was really, there, and it was always warm because it was it was just hot, yep. and and it was just like you know it was kind of like like in Madrid where you you know promenade at night because it's cool. It's and yep. it's only eighty instead of a hundred. Right. And that was exactly the same with Lima, except for the sound of the doves at night, uh, you know, or the right. pigeons. I'm not sure, you know, ooh, 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 all through that neighborhood. I think of all the cities that I have spent time in in Latin America, Limeños are maybe like most Spaniard in the way they roll, like the, the lifestyle, just in oh, the yeah. sense that like they do siesta. It's hardcore, like things are closed from, you know, one to three. <laughs> like there's nothing in the open in that city. Maybe that's changed now, but I don't know. Yeah, you might be able to time. get medical care, but maybe not. Yeah, but I mean, lunch is lunch is like all serious and then you sleep and then everything doesn't start up again until evening and it goes late, you know, so it really is like being in Madrid or one of those cities, you know, like where they really, you know, there's a, there's a morning session. Then there's a big break in the day and then there's evening, which, you know, so yeah, your dinner is going to be light and it's going to be at like 11 yeah. at night. And that food cart, the, the interesting thing about that food cart was, was the local, you know, men and women 
of, of definitely of modest means would yeah. you know come tottering up and the you know he had the gaslight and the bugs were everywhere around it and you'd right. be standing there waiting and and one one evening we were there and this little woman comes shuffling up and she has these two children and I think oh you know she's going to be asking for uh, limosna you know the, the, some little gift of money mm-hmm. and instead. She walks right up to us and offers to sell us her twins. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I do. Five bucks. Five bucks. <laughs> it was like, it was one of the hardest to absorb interactions I've ever had with a human being because like, <laughs> yeah. I understood what she said, but I was sure <laughs> yeah. that I couldn't have understood what she's. I was just so Well, you that, spoke better Spanish, and I said, is she offering to sell us her children? And you were like, yeah, man. Two for five. <laughs> it's like, well, and I remember joking about it and you getting a little annoyed. I was like, does that mean we could take one for two and a half bucks? I mean, <laughs> you're like, you're like, come on, man. Like, that's her, that's her starting price. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, is a, this is an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just, a, and that prepared me for when we were in Rio and the woman came up while we were having uh, Coca-Cola with sugar and offered to sell us her kid for five bucks. And I was like, that's overpriced. I mean, I was like, no, no way. One, one for five? One yeah. for five? No, come on. I just last week I was offered two Peruvians. Yeah, and the Crucero is not worth what the Inti is right now. So, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So as we were getting to know the city, Basically, we started, yeah, we started hanging around with these antiquities dealers and, and then what, I mean, but but they were weird bunch, man. I mean, so this is also how we, but through them, we learned a lot of things about how to exist in Lima at that time through those guys. One one of them was somewhere to stay that was reasonable and and (laughs) reasonably priced and oddly luxurious in a weird set of ways. But the other one was how to have lunch. Because um, oh, there were yeah. so many bombings and things going on in the city that most of what you would expect in a normal city was not functioning, like a lot, yeah. uh, including restaurants in any normal way. Except, and so, except for the except for the LIT and its and its gay yeah. Arab clientele, which was open twenty four seven, even the day after they bombed the Chinese restaurant upstairs. Yeah, and and had that whole remember that big sun awning was full of holes from right. the windows being blown That's out true. upstairs. And it was open 24 hours later. Yeah. But this was something that the Sendero was doing a lot was specifically bombing restaurants because like, yeah, if you're, if you're a limeno of any status, you're going out for lunch. Like it's just like a basic thing that happens. Right. And so this whole part of their culture got driven into an underground system. And so what started happening or what was already happening that we didn't know shit about for a while was these people who hold whose whole business had been basically turning their homes into restaurants, yeah. into, lunch, into lunch places. And so we met through the antiquities guys, we met Carlos Armas, who was the first yeah. person who was doing that kind of thing that we ended up meeting, who was, yeah. who was running out of his apartment on like the Benavides. sixth floor. Like, yeah, sixth floor of the house. Of I just remember the elevators floor. never work because no power. And so you had to yeah, walk 2120 Benavides. So we ended up, getting to know him and his family because we'd go there for lunch. And so you yeah. pay these people to have lunch in their houses. It was actually kind of cool in a weird way. Not all oh, of them were like, like that. Really some, I mean, some of them were full on restaurants just operating in a complete speakeasy style. Well, like, we'll get to that a little later. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the one, one of the anecdotes that I wanted to specifically visit revisit about when you and I were there together this first time was we'd gotten relatively friendly with this guy Tito. And then he, (laughs) he somehow raised this possibility one day that he had these diamonds that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't sell because they were, they were kind of like low grade, you know, and he had a reputational problem with the Syrians that he was trying to sell them. to. That is correct. So there was, there was a (laughs) Syrian mafia about diamonds Something like yeah. Syrian Jews who sold diamonds or some some <laughs> yeah, exactly. crazy ass thing. So there's a small community of diamond merchants in Lima. And, and they were in the shittiest, fucking shittiest part of Lima, the old Remok neighborhood. They were in Remok, which was insane. And yeah. I don't know why the diamond merchants were in the sketchiest part of town, but they were. I guess it was fine for them. Noticed, they, because nobody noticed heavily armed mobs yeah, of men right. just milling about because that's where they were supposed to be. So Tito, basically, I think Tito took one look at me and was like, 
this is my way I can offload these diamonds with these yeah. two Howleys, these two gringos. And so <laughs> I don't know why we agreed to this, but we did that. I was going to pose as a no, 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 no. <laughs> editorial change. Okay. We didn't agree. Okay. You, I don't know why. Change. Yeah. I don't know why I agreed to do this, but it seemed the way he put it, the way he was positioning it, it seemed like it wasn't that sketchy. Of course, I hadn't seen what was going to happen yet. And this, is from a, this is from a young man who was raised around crime, serious criminals, yeah. and who was like, it won't be that sketchy. Heavily armed nation, poverty stricken, <laughs> drug war, everything. It was like you, you, you were a 22-year-old man who just went, yeah, I'm just going to not notice all that shit. <laughs> yeah. I, to, to take my own proportion of the blame for that, was like, yeah, okay, he knows that he's dealt with these people. It'll be no big deal. <laughs> So, yeah, so I agreed. One thing led to another, and I agreed that I would take this little baggie of shitty diamonds, yeah. and, and I would walk, on my own, I would walk into this place where you told me to go. The third floor of a with this up. With this storyline that I'm an exchange student, and I've been sent with this backup money plan that I've got a bag of diamonds. Like, when I really need some extra cash, I could sell diamonds. <laughs> It's the dumbest fucking story I've ever heard, actually. Just saying it out loud right now makes me realize, like, what the fuck was I thinking to ever? I mean, it's a ridiculous idea. So oh, this was the pitch. This was this was the pitch that I was a young, I was a I was an exchange student from the United States. And I, I had this, uh, if I ever needed extra money, I had these diamonds I could go sell. And somehow I'd gotten the name of the local diamond merchant in Rimac where I would never naturally be as an exchange student in Peru. Like there's zero chance that I would ever, yeah, I would never (laughs) be down in this part of town. And, uh, but I went and did this. So I I went down there and of course I have to go in by myself because that's, you know, like, you know, can't possibly show up on the street. Yeah. So I go in, I find this guy's, hovel of an office which is just the skeeviest dive of a place but he's you know got all these gun soles out you know because it's like there's probably a lot of money in there and a lot of diamonds <laughs> and it yeah like you said it's on the third floor of this shitty crapped out office building so i trudge oh, yeah. up to this guy's place and make this deal which i did successfully so he and uh, i think tito had given me like a range of what i was acceptable to take for these diamonds and it was like something like that it was in the ballpark so i took it and so he gives me this cash and and i i walk off scot-free and then as soon as i start walking out of the building i was like oh no no no, no dude you weren't walking out of the building by the well, time you got to the door where i was standing you were full <laughs> tilt running yeah and over your shoulder you said these guys are chasing me let's run and and we were running and where was tito nowhere he was nowhere to be, to be found. no he was nowhere nearby yeah but I, I only got to where you were waiting. I was running by then because as I was descending the staircase, I was I already realized that I was badly fucked. And these guys were not <laughs> going to let me leave the building with the money, even though it was like not that much money. It was a couple hundred bucks or something. But they, no, they were like, it was like this, a thousand bucks. OK, maybe it was a thousand bucks. I mean, it, it was re- a lot of money, relatively man. a lot of money. But like, in a, like OK, anyway, these guys, the minute I walked. It wasn't dollars. It wasn't U.S. dollars. The minute I walked into the building, I'm sure these guys were like, well, we're not letting this kid can leave without the money or the diamonds. Like, you know, but somehow they didn't take me quick enough to just keep me in the building. They didn't just like they let me get out of the office. I don't know why they weren't. I think they weren't thinking I would. They were thinking I was even more naive than I was, which was pretty naive, but uh, not quite that bad. So they let me somehow get out of the building. So so then, yeah, so then I'm, I'm booking it and you're like right with me. We're running down the street in Remak, but these guys are now following us. And there's, and there's four of them. Yeah, there were several there's guys. Bob of those dudes. Yeah, and I and I was like, well, we probably don't have much time to keep this up before they get another crew. We ran into a square. We ran into a yeah. little square, and they surrounded us. There were like ten or twelve dudes, and every one of them had a gun. They were shouting and waving their guns in the air, and I was like, okay, they're gonna just basically. Escort us out of here, kill us, take whatever the money is. Well, keep us alive long enough to sign the traveler checks I stupidly had in my pocket. Um, and, 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 yeah, because I couldn't leave them at that dude's house. Um, and, and, and it was get, it was very, remember they had their hands all over us. They were pulling us all directions. Yeah. And I was worried they were going to start beating us. And I just freaked out, man. And, um, I, I, 
I just smacked that one dude, broke his nose, and he just fell down, and that was the that was the hole we went through. Yeah, and then because he was expecting the, us to be violent. Right, they were expecting us to like cow down and follow along and just get our asses beat or whatever. And then right. boom, we were back into running. And as we were running, I I was I don't know how you felt about it, but I was realizing they're not shooting us because they 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 won't get all the money. They won't get That's all the money. money. Yeah, they won't get all the money, and. And maybe they didn't have bullets. It is that's, it's conceivable that their guns weren't loaded, and it was because a lot of those guys were like that back then. They were just like they had got they could I'll afford a gun, this, but they couldn't afford ammo. I'll tell you this, man. If I didn't know that I'd had balls, I could tell them because I could taste them. There was that man, and they were that far up in my throat, dude. Those guys were scary yeah. as fuck. So we got, we got out of that brief situation, but we're still no better off, basically. Until... Yeah, yeah, we were legging it. Until we we see this place... Okay, so this is the other weird thing that needs a little explanation or backstory about Peru at this time. The banks banks were basically useless because they didn't have money to sell you. So if you you needed to change currency, for instance, you had U.S. dollars... To or your or loved send ones, right? The, these the, the traditional institutions that would do such things were completely sidelined. Like they didn't actually, they weren't able actually to do those transactions. They couldn't do it because they didn't have the currency, they didn't have the facilities. Yeah. So this whole industry had cropped up of these uh, of these cambistas, these like exchange places, which were basically independent businesses that did nothing but trade and send money. Um, yeah. And they were super useful, and they were all over the place. And there was a chain of them, one particular chain of them. That was all over the city that we had gotten that we hadn't gotten to know them, but we'd gotten to know the business, the name of the business and what it was because we'd had to trade money we'd, yeah. or like cash uh, travelers checks or whatever. And they had shops in Miraflores. They had shops in Miraflores. And so we saw one of those and then it was right across from Carlos's place. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> and so the one in Miraflores was. Yeah. 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 So this one was in Remak. So we're running, we're running for our lives. We get free from these guys for a hot second. And basically I don't know which one of us saw it, but the armed guard. Yeah. So these places were like heavily secured and they, they had uh, just like a, a, a teller, like, uh, like one of the old school teller windows in a bank, you know, you like go into a secured cage and then do your transaction yeah. and then they let you back out. So they had a guard who would let you in and a guard who would, and he'd make sure everything was cool. And then he'd let you back out when your transaction was done. It was basically like one group at a time would go into this thing. And so this, we just basically ran up on this guy. I think you waved a traveler's check at him or something. And he let us in to their, to their cell, at which point we were <laughs> temporarily saved. And I remember the other guys running up outside and that guy just leaning forward and saying a little something to them and them just going poof. And they were well, gone. They didn't go. I don't remember them going poof, but I remember them backing off. But yeah. one of them was on a, on a pager or something like they were trying yeah. to figure out what could happen next because now they couldn't quite get at us right then. But, but we were stuck. But we're stuck right in this place, right? And so this is when we made our first uh, accidental and wonderful substantial friend in Peru, basically, because the, the, the most important friend in Peru. One of the guys who just happened to be working at that branch. What was it even called? Was it called Billy something? I don't remember what the. No, no, no. It was, it was called. Um, uh, uh, the word money was in it. Um, I've got a card somewhere. It was uh, M-O-N-E. Uh, I'll remember in a minute. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so just it just so happened that one that that one of the guys working in that branch at that moment was the son of the guy who owned this whole Sandro. Yeah, this whole operation. And so um, he he basically, you know, we somehow expressed to him that we were, you know, in a really shitty situation, and those guys outside were trying to steal from us and had been chasing us, and he. I don't know why, but he decided to save our asses, um, which he did by. Well, he let us sit there for a while. He let us stay said, for one he, thing. Said, yeah. And then he said, he said, let me, I'll be right back. And then he went in the back and he said, why don't you guys come into the back? And then there was this small man right. sitting in the back and he was in a suit and tie. Sandra was super cash, but, or maybe, no, it wasn't Sandra. It was Percy, Percy Jr. Percy Jr. That's right. It was Percy yeah. Jr. And, and, and so he goes in the back and there's this man behind a desk, very small man, maybe five, six at tops and very proper and, you know, waves, you know, sit down. And then he realizes you speak Spanish right. and he immediately starts talking to you and you explain 
what's taking place. And, and he basically says, as I recall, um, well, what, we'll just, you just wait until we close yeah. and then, you come and with then us. we'll take and yep. then we'll take you. Now, by that time, by that time, we were staying. We weren't staying. We were now staying in in, in the apartment at Los Pinares. Right. That's right. You know, I don't know how we. I don't know how that happened. Um, we've somehow met the woman who owned the building, and we ended up staying in like the fifth floor in Los Pinares. It was pretty secure because you went in there, and the and the guys at the front desk wouldn't tell anybody any fucking thing because that's not how right. it went. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was basically like. Once you're in the building, you're anonymous. And remember, it was right across the street. Uh, it was uh, Los Tuares, uh, 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 and it was on. It was on Los Pinares, but it was uh, it was uh, it was uh, Los Pinos was what it was called. And it was right across the street from that like 20-story building, the whole face of which oh, hadn't yeah. been finished. Right. Yeah. And the people were living in the apartments anyway, with yeah. no fucking faultier death window, you know, because there's no windows. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so, so yeah, he's sitting in the back there and, and uh, why don't you pick up the story from there? Well, so I, I think, he, you know, he figured out where we needed to go and, and he just said, you know, we'll just, it, it's not a problem. We'll just wait until, you know, wait, you guys can come with me and we'll wait until my car comes at the end of the day. And so I was still like not really understanding what was the situation, but so that turned out to be, that's Percy Valite. So he was the, the patriarch of this family that we became friends with. And his one of his sons, Percy Jr., who had, who had like helped us out in the first place. So inadvertently, we just like lucked the fuck out. And uh, this guy like took a shine to us, helped us, you know, saved our asses that day for sure. But then ended up um, taking us home for dinner, basically. So when he yep. said his, when he said his car was coming, <laughs> what that meant for him was, a secured limousine would be arriving because the, you you know it's it was a wealthy family and bulletproof when, limousine followed yeah. front and back by guard yeah. cars yeah because when you're it, <laughs> when you're that kind of money at, especially at that time period of history in Peru like everything was heavy and so so yeah so when he said you know no problem I'll take you home what he meant was like I <laughs> I'm more well armed than those guys. And they're not going <laughs> to, yeah. they're not going to fuck with us once my car pulls up. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Like they were still hanging around trying to figure out yeah. when they were going to get us, except for these guys roll up with way more muscle and we just walked out, you know, and got in the car yeah. with them. And I think it was probably a very confusing event for those poor <laughs> bastards who'd been sent to come get us. They, they probably got chewed out so bad. Like really you couldn't pick off a couple of oh. unarmed gringos. Like you let them go. <laughs> probably did not have a good night after that yeah probably get their asses beat but that was the first time that we went to one of the legit underground restaurants because yeah i'll take you i'll take you for dinner we were thinking we'd go to his house for dinner yeah but no and he took us to the we took us back to los pinares and said i'll be back at x uh, like nine or ten it was late and i'll come back and pick you up and sure enough downstairs the guardiano calls and says hey uh, Mr. Valide is here for you, and we go down, and there's a Mercedes waiting, and a, you know three of Mercedes, and um, we get in the middle one, and off we go to where the fuck? I mean, out past Remark. Yeah, way far away. Um, and like in maybe maybe in the direction of uh, like El Molino or something like that. I don't even remember, don't remember where that place was, to be honest. I remember when we got to it, it was just like a basement. It looked like. It looked like nothing from the outside, and except yeah, for like, up, it, was, it looked like a shitty row yeah. house. Yeah, yeah, but like <laughs> the basement of a shitty row house. Like we went oh, to yeah. the bottom, right? But inside yeah. the fucking thing was like a thirty speakeasy. It had a, you know, it was like amazing opulence. Like a crazy uh, restaurant yeah. was a, a nightclub, not just a restaurant, was existing was in there, full of the wealthy elites of Lima. That's how they were rolling. Yeah, and so yeah, that was the. I remember that that was the first conversation I ever had. I remember Percy the food really. there. I remember the food. You were actually talking because uh, that was he didn't bring a vet that evening. I don't think. No, we didn't meet her till later. Yeah, but I remember you and he were chatting, and I was just being mind blown by the quality of the food. Oof, yeah, that was that was maybe <laughs> the other than the other than the sh- the sandwich shop, because up uh-huh. till then. We we had because we didn't really have good local information in some ways. We had been really careful. We hadn't been eating ceviche. We hadn't been eating seafood. We hadn't been eating anything fresh that might have been washed with water. 
we'd been pretty like yeah. careful. And that was the first night I had ceviche because Percy was like, it's fine. You know, <laughs> he was like, everything yeah, here, everything it. here is fine. You can eat it. And so I was like, okay, I guess this guy saved our lives already today. I might as well trust him <laughs> on this one. And um, we never did get sick that trip at all. Oh, no. No, Even no, though we did no. eat at that, we did eventually eat at that cevicheria in Barranco. Now we now we went with Tito to the cevicheria called uh, called the Casa Roja. Wasn't that and in Barranco by the cliffs? Yeah, in Barranco. It's in Barranco. Yeah. yeah, and that was Mama Racha, man. That was good <laughs> shit. Yeah, uh, and he was and he was the same. You know, I eat here all the time. You're gonna be yeah. fine. Uh, he said, that I remember his thing was uh, that's for tourists that they get sick. Uh, we don't get sick. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, but <laughs> I think that's not right, but okay. But, but Percy took us to another place, um, which was also pretty spectacular on the cliffs in, um, in, uh, in, uh, San Luis, um, called, uh, Costanera, the oh, Costanera, right yeah, on the yeah, cliffs yeah. where Fujimori was eating. Right. Where we walked in, it was like a, it was like it, it looked like it was going to fall into the ocean any minute. Yep. You drove down a dead end road and pulled in front of it like full desert, something out of a fucking Sergio Leone movie. And you go inside, and the big fans are going. It's super dark, and Fujimori yep. is literally like right over there. You know, it's a ten thousand yep. square foot open room with hushed waiters going back and forth, and the really rich people, and out in the out in the in the driveway. Half the cars are, are empty and half the cars are full of gunslingers, you know, yeah, right. because that's just what it is, yep. you know, and um, Fukimori, and that, we should mention, despite the uh, Japanese name, was the president of Peru at this time, who's oh, yeah, son of yeah. Japanese immigrants. And there's a shit ton of amazing Japanese food in Peru. And that's part of, I think that's one of the fusions that makes their food so you fucking amazing. You're not talking about Chifa. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about Chifa. <laughs> Chifa's a whole different thing. <laughs> oh man, Chifa's good. Chifa's yeah. So good. then, so Percy. Chifa. Yeah. No, no. So then, Percy introduced us eventually, kind of to his whole family. I, I think he had his eye on me as a possible date for his daughter. He uh, did because she was a little older than me, but not a lot. And uh, I think That's Percy was chemistry. Percy was probably thinking like, wouldn't be a bad call to have an American marry into the family. Could be useful. He was already yeah. he was already romancing Dennis Belcher for that role. Yeah, which and that's yeah, did eventually shot. happen. They were they were trading in uh in rare gems. Um and Dennis Belcher was in Denver and that was his business. And they that's how they'd connected. And Dennis is a very upright guy who later, sometime later, I came to suspect might not have been such an upright guy. <laughs> but he he was a, a different slice of crime. Um right. The geology crime. Um, I mean, I, I remember, uh, I remember you and I were walking down the street uh, in in that area of the El Dorado, and um, so there's so there's this this dude, um, the one the guy with the limp bad arm, um, and uh, and they pull up one. It's like maybe we'd been there eight or ten days, and they pull me up on the street because I've been looking for things, you know, and um, and they roll out this I don't know if you were with me or not they roll out something that was probably five meters long and a full meter high and it was purple and red and looking back as a as a as a pre-columbian art dealer looking back I realized I, I had seen something I would never see again which was a they thought it was a Nazca textile they said so but it was probably a, an Inca textile and it was fucking impeccable and it was huge and you know they wanted a thousand dollars for it and i was skeptical because i was an ignorant fuck and i had no idea what i was looking at which also in the following story comes in handy oddly um so i said no no thanks you know you know and and then no you were there because then they said well we'll take you to introduce you to this guy um and his name was uh benedetto and he was an old man, and he lived in another colonia, um, which was uh, La Batalla, um, down by the Porno Museum. Um, you know, uh, what was the name of that museum where they had all the pornographic oh, the erotic, the erotic, yeah, all the, I don't remember what it's called. Um, 
Yeah, and so we went to his house with them in a taxi, and you had to go upstairs, and it was a crowded little house, and he had all sorts of sh- shit. Yeah. Um, because he was sort of the back end of the. He was the. He was the sort of black sheep of the of wasn't the dealing he, community. Wasn't he also running a huge faking operation eventually? That yes. same guy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but but he also said that. <laughs> he said that, and you're like, okay. Uh, I mean, there were just so many weird little inconsistencies. People didn't have a, you know, they were they were these sort of half-ass criminals. Hmm. The, the entire underground of, at a certain level there of that trade in that time of the pre-Columbian art trade in that time was just very um, ad hoc. They had just that guy had been in it for a long time because he knew all he knew the gringo. He knew a lot of the old guys. Right. Pedro Isa knew all these men that I later came to know who were really at the end of their careers but had been very famous uh, thieves during the 70s, um, per- most particularly during the 60s and 70s. Um, when did Sipan uh, happen? When was that all robbed? Sipan happened in, uh, was was happening in, in 88. Okay, it was later though, right? I mean, it was like not too far before. We were, we it was, were, we were late for it. Right, right. But Sipan I, I, Sipan is like a lot of the reason why the patrimony laws were really... Absolutely, they were readjusted. Yeah, because the 1970 UNESCO patrimonial laws didn't protect things like uh, Sipan. They were very specific, almost inclusive to almost exclusively Mayanist material because nobody gave a shit about Latin American ancient history. And then the Sipan thing really excited um, the 1990 Exclusion Act, which, which, you know, while I was there, uh, there was there were two revisions. One was the 1990 Act, and one was the, I think the 96 Act. While I was there, and it depended on what institution you were dealing with, what part of the law they paid attention to. Really, um, it, they had the they had situational consciousness in relation to patrimonial goods. Um, but I remember in that shop, in that guy's you know hovel, um, being both aggravated and comfortable because I just didn't feel like he was, you know, felt like we were in a small time sort of dangerous thing. But at the same time, he had elements, fragments, bits of things that I would later come to realize if he had had the whole thing would have been quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But one day you and I were walking along and, and I had already bought the burial mask, uh, the Shanghai burial mask from Tito. Uh, that was the first thing I bought was that. And then I bought from him a bunch of what turned out to be really worthless uh, Ica materials, the yellow um, tapestry of birds and so forth on a brown ground, you know, brown and yellow. Yeah, really. yeah. Um, but then I went to this little shop in Miraflores uh, off of, at the bottom of Benavides down to where it almost goes to the ocean in the bottom of a hotel. You and I went there. And it was this labyrinthine uh, lower floor where you could, there were 10, 30 shops, all these tiny shops. And there was this man in his 70s that we ran into. He spoke beautiful English, um, but he pretended not too often. Um, Mm -hmm. And he had things in drawers. He was almost like a guy who was a stamp collector. And he had many, many things in drawers, most of which were shit. But I remember he opened a drawer and there was uh, there were two objects which I bought from him while you were there with me. Um, one of them was a, a, a strand of what I later, I didn't even know what the technology was. It was needle knit embroidery. And one of them was that little line of plants that was yeah, 20 Yeah, I remember long. this really well. And it was fucking, I mean, the, the, the coconut trees had coconuts and they were, and it was a 2,000 year old object. And he was very plain. It was like, this is a Paracas piece. And, you know, at that time, I was thinking of Paracas as that other stuff. I didn't know this was part of it, but I could tell it, that you could just feel it. Um, and, um, and then he had, it ended up being like 12 feet of these woven three-dimensional needle knit uh, heads, trophy heads that had been the outline of uh, uh, an, uh, some kind of a burial cloth. And, um, and I, I mean, I spent $400 on those two items, 200 for each. Um, and it's a good thing I did because the other stuff that I spent $8,500 on <laughs> or 9000 or something was fucking worthless. But the things that I spent 200 for the head, 200 for the plants, and 200 for those that lines of heads, 
And I sold those for $15,000 for the three of them. And the rest of the stuff I ended up giving away to a museum. It was absolutely worthless. Right. So the only thing that saved me were these accidents of trinketry. Um, uh, and that was what Peru was like at that time. You didn't, you, it wasn't like what it later became for me, it was, it was, which was very a different attack. It was like you could literally wander through the city and by, by asking questions you weren't supposed to ask and making some people uncomfortable, you could gradually find somebody like this guy. He could have been a watch salesman in some way. You know, remember he wore very, his shoes were handmade. He was a very well-kempt man. Um, he'd always been an honest and decent guy. He was an antique dealer. He had beautiful statuary and he had, you know, things you couldn't take from Peru either, but they were mainly Catholic, uh, items. Right. Yeah. Reliquary. And, and you could just find, it was, it was almost like you would reach your hand into a dark space and just rummage around and pull out something out of your dreams. It was fucking amazing. And how, how that went down. I mean, look, remember that. You and Percy and was it no? It was you and you and I went on it. We I don't know if we rented a car. Or we went. On, well, I think we rented a car, and we went up to Shanghai, and we were out oh, yeah. literally walking in the middle of the fucking desert there, dogs barking and chasing up to you, but they were so disanimated by hunger they couldn't hurt you, and and you know people skulking around, and then. You, you, you had a bad feeling, but we backed off and went back, got, you know, and got in the car and we had to go to the gas station. So we go to the gas station and we realize we're being followed by some cops, plain clothes dudes. Remember? Yep, I do. And it was super uncomfortable. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to lose these fucking guys. I don't know. It's just, you know, but they wouldn't go fast. <laughs> so we just literally drove away from them. It was the strangest time. And then the coast stank like fish. Yeah, I mean, it, the whole city was, um, well, it's it's already just kind of like a gray, weird, oh, it's not oh. a very attractive town. It, no, it's culturally, it's amazing. But yeah, but it, but yeah, the whole place was just sort of like, yeah, I mean, in an advanced state of decay. Everything. You'd go to Remock. Remember, we went to Remock and you would just walk through those old neighborhoods and they had these incredible porticos. Yeah, there's like colonial balconies and things yeah, on the old 16th, building. 17th yeah. century things yeah. that the whole building would be falling down, but you couldn't save the portico because of the patrimonial loss. Right. Yeah. It was couldn't be I changed or moved. I remember later scheming with Percy that we buy one of the buildings and that we have one of uh, there was a very famous wood faker in the town. And that we essentially go to him, he's dead now. Um, um, and that we go to him and have him make a portico in pieces. And then we put it on a truck and that we go over there and that we shroud the building under the guise of restoring it. Yeah. And, and then just replace the old portico <laughs> and replace it with a new one and then have the building collapse. Um, you know, and that's that. And everybody knows <laughs> the portico has been destroyed. End of story. You know, and, and, uh, and Percy was totally down to do it. He had, like, it's an elaborate scheme, man. You know what? It was those porticos would have been worth a half a million dollars a piece. Mm. In Spain, they would have killed to get one of those, and they're still there. The ones that are there, they're still rotting right where they were twenty-five years ago. It's unbelievable. Yeah, this is an interesting, ah. <laughs> interesting time in that city for oh, sure. And 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 how did we meet that woman? We met a woman. She was in her 30s, I, I would guess. Uh, I think I was 42 or something. Um, she was in her 30s, a Peruvian woman. We, and I, I'm trying to remember, maybe you can, where we met her. We ended up going to dinner with her at a restaurant on the other side of the, of the highway, up, up on Benavides on the, what would have been the north side of the, of the international highway above Miraflores. And we went for dinner in this weird restaurant and then we went to her house i think and as we were having it i think we were having you were having wine with her or something i was having water and anyway and she asked me if i was married remember that now i remember what we're talking about yeah and, and i said yes i'm married because i was defending myself i was like I mean, I, you know 
yes, I'm married, I said. And she said, I'm not jealous. <laughs> and I remember looking across at you and you were like, uh-oh, <laughs> there's not gonna, that is not gonna work out here. You're not gonna, they're not getting out of here alive with that one, Dan. <laughs> but the whole country seemed like it was just an enterprise zone like that. You know? Well, yeah, well, I think everybody was, like I was saying earlier with Percy, like I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure that he, uh, he took a liking to both of us for one reason or another. It's hard to say why, but I, I, I'm certain that on some level he was, he was checking me out and being like, uh, you know, like my daughter's going to need a way out of this situation. Right. And, and, uh, and then, you know, I was joking earlier about the Swiss Peruvians, but fuck, I feel like every, every wealthy family that we met had, that's the citizenship pair that they somehow had. That was their escape hatch in Switzerland. Yeah. I don't know. Eddie, Eddie was like that. Who else? I mean, there, um, well, we haven't even talked about meeting. We didn't meet Eddie that first trip. Oh, though. no. Oh, I, I keep remembering these things. Okay, so we met this guy. Um, okay, so here's the, here's the way to start. This is what a fucked up time it is. So I own, according to the law to this day, 2,500 acres in the Santa Cruz drainage that is a denuncio that I got in partnership with the guy that you and I went down there with uh, who's his father? Oh, what's his name? His father was a famous Air Force general. He had been shot. He was a communist, right? And and and, and, and he was a communist, and they'd lost everything, and then he'd gradually clawed his way back. Did, didn't we go there because like the premise was he was going to show us the Nazca lines or something? We were going to. No, no, we went there. We went there because I wanted to dig on his property. Oh, and <laughs> and, and he had property in the drainage that was south of the Nazca lines. That's right. right. Okay. So that was in in uh, in uh, the Rio Santa Cruz. So remember, we got down there. We turned left up that little canyon. We go back and back and back, and then there's a river over there where he's got his farm shit that he's always had. And we and we're in the river cut, and we climbed up out of the river cut. You were right there. We climbed up out of the river cut, and for miles, yeah, you could, nothing but bones. Yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? And and he said, oh, this isn't my business, you know, but I know they took the top cemetery, but I think that there's cemeteries underneath that cemetery. <laughs> and I walked out there and I picked up some shit and I was like, it was an Inca cemetery, you know? And yeah. I was like, shit. So that's the, that is the guy that I got the denuncio from that, uh, that I ended, that's where the bulldozer went. Was in, uh, <laughs> all right. That's another story. But <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, I think there's, there's way too much to capture in one session. So I think we should probably oh, chunk yeah. this out and we'll have to what pick up. Is that guy's name? I don't remember. I do remember going down there with you. Like I, what I'm realizing as similar to you is like, there's a lot of this that I forgot that I was even part of. Like, yeah. I mean, we went all over the place too. Like, we went I mean, all we went, we over went the down to the place. Kolka. Like we did all kinds of weird shit that I honestly have forgotten mostly entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at that time, I mean, that's the other weird thing about that. Like, you were saying that story about being up in Chiang and getting followed by those guys. And I remember like yeah. there was a roundabout at one point that we kind of had to speed through and, <laughs> there, and it was on fire in the center. It was just a huge yeah. bonfire yeah. in the middle of it. And I was like, the fuck are we man i remember even going up there we passed that there's that whole district as you actually get up into the desert into the real slums where people are living in holes in the ground that like they were doing they were doing a muffler repair remember the guys who did the muffler repair i remember driving by they they just dig holes down there instead of having you know like car elevators they just excavate holes in the ground and you just just drive over these fucking guys who are sanding in a hole in the ground and they're welding in there. There there was a guy who owned one of those who, when he was digging the hole, found some bodies and tried to sell me the bodies, (laughs) the whole corpses, you know, like you were saying, the fardos, those called fardos. And and he tried to sell me the fardos. It's so, yeah, we were there together and saw that shit. You met Eddie with me, Eddie Wagner. Holy fucking shit. That guy's epic. That's an epic story. You met, you met a lot of the people that I dealt with for a long time. You didn't meet John Riddle, the, you know, those no. guys helping later. And I didn't meet, meet the, Eddie and the casino I gangsters Eddie. and all those guys. I never met. Yeah, I dealt with Eddie for ten years. You know. Yeah. And oh. Eddie was the like such a 
I mean, you know, what a sort of beautiful, horrible, bon vivant dude. I mean, the, that guy's yeah. worth a book himself. You yeah. know, that guy was the fucking business. Okay, so I think that's where we pick it up next time. All right, cool. Eddie, Eddie Wagner yep. and your descent into madness in Peru. <laughs> then that's the whole, like, then there, there's just years and years and years of you doing all this weird shit down there that I wasn't around for. You know, so. I don't think about that. I mean, just between the two of us, it's like, um, you know, I would, I would say, for, for a long time, I would say, you know, I had a secret life. But right now, sitting here, I realize no one, no one, absolutely no one knows what I was doing. funny that this conversation reminds me that for years and years maybe most of my life I had this narrative in place where I wasn't the interesting one in the family my dad was the interesting person and I just tagged along and got to see this interesting shit happen but you know I was just an observer not really a participant what a ridiculous idea right I mean (laughs) it's absurd even just on the face of it, looking back on it. But I really did believe that, you know, and I think it was a part of a process of me rationalizing and keeping myself safe from ancestral trauma that I think runs in the family, my dad and I share. I mean, I say at the top of these conversations, like two twins born 22 years apart, kind of a ha-ha joke, but I think, you know, also not at the same moment. Like, this is something that fascinates me. Like, do we choose our parents? It's a very Buddhist idea. But there's something real about it. And it's actually really fun and liberating, honestly, to revisit these memories that I shared with my dad and realize, man, you know, there were some wild things happening and I wasn't just an observer, you know, we were co-creating this odd reality and having these adventures and there were some powerful things that were happening in amongst them and also some very deviant and bizarre things. We were both working out in our separate ways, sometimes together, sometimes not. The idea of a secret life, which we'll talk about more in the next episode about Peru, uh, reminded me of a poem by that same name by Stephen Dunn. I'm just going to read it as a way out of this one and see you all next time. Why you need to have one is not much more mysterious than why you don't say what you think at the birth of an ugly baby. Or you've just made love and feel you'd rather have been in a dark booth where your partner was nodding, whispering, yes, yes, you're brilliant. The secret life begins early, is kept alive by all that's unpopular in you, all that you know a Baptist, say, or some other accountant would object to. It becomes what you would most protect if the government said, you can protect one thing, everything else is ours. When you write, last night, it's like a small fire in a clearing. It's what radiates and what can hurt you if you get close to it. It's why your silence is a kind of truth, even when you speak to your best friend, the one who will never betray you. But you always leave out one thing. A secret life is that important.